This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Higher ed has a lot of issues these days, and one of the biggest is affordability. But today, we want to take a look at a lesser-known problem in the world of college academia, and that is the number of students who begin college but drop out and never graduate. This issue ends up being connected to affordability as students leave school with no degree, lots of student debt, and an even bleaker economic outlook than they had before they started college. And, of course, this is especially true for students of color. Joining us now to delve into this issue, which which he lays out in his book, The College Dropout Scandal, is author, professor, and writer David Kirp. David, welcome to Detroit Today. It's great to be here. Yeah. So your book, which came out in August, is titled The College Dropout Scandal. Let's start by discussing that word, scandal. What is the scandal here as you see it? Well, you start with the figures that you that you gave us, which is that half the kids who go to public universities, who start public universities, emerge without a degree. And for those students... As you described, they're in, they're in de- their lives are changed. Not only are they in debt, they're going to have a harder time getting a job. They're more likely to wind up bankruptcy. They're less likely to get involved civically. This is a, a lifelong impact. So that's the problem. The, the good news is that we know how to dramatically move the needle on graduation rates. And indeed, I'm sure we'll talk about this. Wayne State is one of those places that has done brilliantly and showed the way in this area. We know how to do it, and that's a great example, and the dropout rate hasn't budged, which means schools aren't doing it, which means it's a scandal for which nobody is accountable. Yeah. Nobody loses their job because of dropout rates. So, so talk about the major obstacles that lead students to drop out of college. I know that finances, of course, are a big part of that. People feel like they can't afford to stay and graduate, but there are some other things as well that you talk about in your book. Yeah, money matters, but it's important to know that two colleges that admit exactly the same kind of students on paper have very, very different graduation rates. And that two colleges with the same graduation rate are going to have very, very different minority graduation rates. So there will be a gap of zero in some places. Minority students actually graduate at a higher rate. At other places, the gap is 20, 30, 40 percent. Um, so that's you know, that's a huge problem in this area. Why do they drop out? Ultimately, there's a one-liner to describe the book. They drop out because they don't feel like they're members of a community that actually takes them seriously, that actually respects them as members of the community. They're, they think of themselves as really as check-writing machines who, for whom the university is a, is a distant force, cares only about the money they produce, and their professors aren't accessible, and they haven't gotten any support. And if they they run into academic problems or emotional problems. There's no counselor for them. Many schools have a counselor for every thousand students. So realistically, nobody for them to talk to about this. And that's what happens. They fall behind. Nobody pays attention and they leave. And, and talk about the importance of that dynamic when you are referring to first generation students, people whose parents did not go to college or people who are part of uh, minority, ethnic minority uh, communities who find themselves in extreme minorities often on college campuses. This affects them really differently. Yeah, let's, let's, it's a great question. Let's start with us. Uh, I was a first-gen college student, but otherwise uh, don't want to put myself in that category. When I showed up in college, I was scared to death. 
I was away from home. I was living in a different world. Um, I didn't have the kind of support that I would have wanted. I was depressed. I thought about leaving. Now, if you add to that the, the problems that a poor kid or a minority kid face, they've got nobody to guide them, nobody to help them, nobody to support them. They've got to fill out a financial aid application, the federal FAFSA form. They've got to do it on their own because they don't have help. Um, and once they're in school, you know, they, they, if they don't have somebody to turn to, there really is nobody at home who – it's not as though people don't care. It's not as though parents aren't interested. They just don't have the knowledge to be able to be useful to them. And, and, it strikes, and again, yeah, go ahead. this is what this is. This is this really is where colleges come in because they they know this, they can compensate for this in ways that make a world of difference. It, it also strikes me that some of the things that we're seeing go on in our society more generally are exacerbating this. So the the sort of super kids, I guess you might call them, who who show up on college campuses, who are who are immensely prepared for all of the experience, not just the academics, but the sort of cultural confines of campuses, the, the, the life that students live, uh, the, the number of those kids who exist, the number of those kids who, who show up uh, on college campuses each fall is swelling, is growing in, in, in enormous ways. That seems to make the difference between them and kids who may be first gen or uh, ethnic minorities. Uh, it, it makes that gap even more noticeable, and it makes the dynamic more intense. No, indeed, there is a huge gap between the students you're describing. Um, you know, the students with helicopter parents who show up when there is the slightest bit of trouble for their for their son or daughter on the on the campus who've been, to use the words that one student's happy to use, that they've been coddled um, along the way. Um, and the gap between that and the students I'm describing is immense. Having said that, again, the point I want to underscore is that you have colleges that have figured out, they're not going to compensate entirely for that. They're not going to be super mom or super dad. But I'll tell you, the counselors, students that I've talked to particularly attach themselves to counselors and advisors. They're the big sisters, the big brothers. It's like the mom. I, you know, it's like having a second mom. Those people are crucial um, in the lives of these students. Having you know, a, a math course, an introductory math course, that isn't terrifying. Again, I think about myself. I was absolutely over my head floundering in math. You, you can rewrite the script for math, not require um, college algebra, which none of us, I think, are going to make use of unless we're in a STEM field. You do lots of things to make the life of students a whole lot better. They don't have, it's lovely if they have the kind of background you described, but it's not necessary to succeed. Hmm. Uh, you do talk about Wayne State University uh, in your book, and you hold them up as an example of a university that seems to get it and is trying to fix this problem. Now, of course, we should say up front that the stats at Wayne are nothing to, to be uh, happy or, or proud of, but in your estimation, uh, their approach to this is pushing them in the right direction. Well, it's interesting. Wayne is a great story. And by the way, I want to say something about Western Michigan while I'm here, because it turns out to be my other hero institution. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I, when I first got into this, Wayne was a disaster. Uh, and I write about Georgia State University. It has the same admissions criteria policy as Wayne does. It has a, an even larger proportion of African-American students. Its graduation rate was 30% higher than Wayne's. I mean, that, so that was the piece I was going to write. It's the contrast between two schools, same admissions criteria, 
hugely different rates. And Wayne State has closed the gap, and they've done it because they took a leaf out of the book of Georgia State. And what does that mean? For starters, they brought in a president and a provost who have made student success their number one priority. That is not true in lots of places where the number one priority is moving up the U.S. News and World Report list or raising money or building a new football stadium or making your lumps happier, all those kinds of things. They bring in these folks, and then they do a kind of mapping of the college. What are the roadblocks to graduation from the day students are admitted to the day they walk out the door? they got problems at the end. They, they, they leave as seniors because they're short of maybe $1,000. What can we do about that? They come in. They're not well prepared. They don't have a feeling about college, as we've talked about before. What can we, the institution, do about that? And, and they have their – absolutely. They would be the first to tell you they're not done. This is a long, long path to be on. And there's a, they bump into a limit, which is the one you mentioned earlier. It's the limit of money. But they, they, they can get up to a 75 or 80% graduation rate, and they know it. And they can close the gap a whole lot more because their huge problem is the gap between minority rates and overall graduation rates. They've done, they've done much better than they were doing in the past, but there's a lot of work to be done. Mm. And my can guess, I say a word about Western Michigan? Yeah, absolutely. Wanna... No, no, go right ahead. So, you know, so, so I was asked actually by, by someone in a, in a phone call from Michigan, what do you know about foster kids and how well they do? And I knew nothing. I was kind of embarrassed. Well, you take all those groups, you know, poor kids, minority kids, first-gen kids, and you put them on steroids and you get foster kids. I mean, they got everything going against them, right? And their overall graduation rate is, is figured at between 10% and 2%. 2%. Okay, um, Western Michigan overall graduation rate for all students is 52%. Not brilliant, not far from the average, far from brilliant. But the graduation rate for foster kids is 42%, 2% versus 42%. Mm. What did they do? They personalized their education. They, they, they smothered them in support. They made it financially feasible to go to college, and they gave them lots of advising and counseling and, and support from faculty. And, you know, that's, that's a huge that's a huge story, huge undertold story. Both mm-hmm. of those schools really deserve to be called out for doing great things. Mm-hmm. It also seems to me, and I, I have some familiarity familiarity with this uh, through uh, someone I know quite well who works on a scholarship at the University of Michigan that is intended for first-gen students, uh, but that's funded by a donor. It, it strikes me that, that there's interest now outside the university apparatus for instance, that uh, that also is aimed at supporting these kinds of programs. Absolutely, the happiest moment that I've had in this in working on this book. I'm, I'm also a, a New York Times contributing writer, and I wrote about a program in the City University of New York that had doubled graduation rates. And I, I don't want to be tiresome to, by repeating the, the message, but the message was financial support, well-structured curriculum, and lots of, you know, and lots of help from counselors and advisors. So the university gets a phone call from a wealthy donor and says, how much would it cost to put through a cohort of your students? And the answer came back $4 million. And a few days later, the university got a call. To whom do I write out the check? Mm. That's wonderful. And mm. that's the kind of story that I hope we hear more of because, you know, I've, I've urged potential donors not to focus. I love small liberal arts colleges. I went to one of those. You know, elite universities are fine. They don't need your money. I mean, Harvard has an endowment bigger than the the GNP of of the country of Panama. Does not need your money. But the schools that do, 
Yeah, and the kids that do are are substantial in number. There are lots of good ways to invest money, not just in individual kids, but in boosting the numbers of kids who get to college and particularly who get through college. Mm. It's not a story about access. We all the focus is on access. It's a story about success. Well, and support, right? I mean, this idea that, yeah, that exactly. you have to have that support exactly. in order for the success exactly. to I mean, to the, the metric really is, yeah, I mean, it's not just getting kids into college. What I really mean by that, it's not just getting kids into college. It's doing what you can to get kids through college. So, so I also want to ask you about the conversation that seems to be unfolding about the idea of college being unnecessary. In other words, that people who go to vocational schools, people who pursue, pursue trade careers and other alternative post-high school career paths are doing as well, quote-unquote, as people who graduate from college. Is it, How do you answer that sort of, uh, uh, I guess, directive about how we deal with this yeah. problem of dropouts and student debt and all those other things? I, so it's, a real, it's a really important point. There are people... You know, I, I get asked the question, maybe those kids shouldn't have gone to college. Well, you know, that's often not the case, but sometimes it is. Sometimes there are, there are going to be students who'd be a whole lot better off in the trades, and indeed they'll make a lot of money. We're running out of electricians and plumbers and, and, and carpenters in the society, and those, to say nothing of the, of the more high-tech um, hands-on fields, and those are programs to which technical schools and community colleges can prepare students. Still, the overall data, you know, tells you that, you know, if you're in doubt, you know, the average college grad has a premium lifetime income of a million dollars compared to somebody who just goes to high school and a premium of $500,000 compared to somebody who goes to community college. Um, so if you're playing the averages, those are the numbers. But again, I want to underscore the, the wisdom of the point of the critics. Don't push kids who don't want to go to college into it just because. There are other things they can do, and there are other ways of living a satisfactory, a happy life and a financially successful life. So I also want to look ahead to next year when we will elect a new president. And several candidates have talked about this idea of getting rid of all the student loan debt. How do you think that would change the landscape for these students, those who drop out and those who get their degrees? If we removed finance from the picture, would the numbers get better? So it's it's fascinating. This turns out to be <laughs> the the college debt story is reasonably complicated. But here's a story from yesterday's newspaper. You know who's taking out the biggest college debt? Wealthy kids, mm. not poor kids. Wealthy kids. If you look at the average debt that a poor kid graduates from college, it's way lower than a middle class or upper class kid. And even for the average student who's in debt, they they leave with twenty nine thousand. They graduate with twenty nine thousand dollars in debt. Now that's not a trivial sum. But it's about what it would cost you to, you know, to buy a decent automobile in Detroit. Uh, so, and then paying off everybody's debt. I mean, who's, who's got the debt? I mean, somebody who goes to the University of Michigan Law School is probably $150,000 in debt. Am I really worried about making sure that a lawyer gets a great head start in life or a hmm. business exec? I don't think so. And those, that's where the big debt numbers come from. It's graduate programs. And some of those are scandals. The University of Southern California charges $150,000 to get a degree in social work. Wow. Social work, where the average salary is $50,000 a year. That's a scandal. But, no, I think, I think you want to target 
debt support for, for starters. You want to you want to make sure that students who are in deep deep trouble can include college debt as part of what their their debt is when they're declaring bankruptcy. Why dis, why distinguish college debt from other things? You want to get them on a plan to pay off their their money before they get into this kind of trouble. That isn't being done. It's not a headline. That's not headline making. But yeah. that's really what we ought to be doing. Yeah, David Kerp author of The College Dropout Scandal. It was really great to have you with us here on Detroit Today. Thanks it was a pleasure. Here. Great great conversation. Yes. Take care. Thank you. Also, remember, you can join me for a screening of a movie called Unlikely, the story of five students who are fighting for a second chance at higher education opportunity. Uh, we're going to show that film at 7 on December 11th at Cinema Detroit. It will be followed by a discussion that I will moderate about the stories, strategies, and solutions featured in the film. You can find more info at WDET.org. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.